Welcome to the first episode of the comic show on Monkeys Fighting Robots. Today's episode is an introduction. Anthony and I are talking about our favorite books and our influences from the comic book world. Plus, we have an interview with comic book creator slash legend. Is he a legend yet? I don't know. Scott Snyder. I'm your host, Matthew Sardo. I'm also the co-founder of MonkeysFightingRobots.com. Joining me in the conversation is my co-host, editor of the comic book section of Monkeys Fighting Robots, Anthony Composto. And if you like the show, make sure you subscribe on Blog Talk Radio as well as iTunes and Stitcher if you're on Android. Uh, feedback is always welcome, obviously, so please comment. Uh, let us know what you think. This is a big day, Anthony. This is the first yeah, comic is. show. It is. It's something that we've been needing. Oh, something Oh, we've been lacking in the comic book department on the Monkeys Fighting Robots podcast world. But now we're, we're trying to fill that void because I went to Megacon and I got back into comic books. Megacon. You were. It was like a little kid. You were like a little kid in a candy shop. It was great. Oh, man. Um, and you and I come from really two different places when it comes to comic books because the age gap between us. And because for me, I grew up reading comic books in the late 80s and early 90s. So I had Image when it first came out. Everybody's going, oh, my God, these Image books are going to be worth millions and millions of dollars. And now they're all worth 25 cents. Or hundreds. If you're if you're lucky enough to get in on like The Walking Dead or Saga early on. But I'm talking about the 90s because the 90s was a speculation market for comic books. And it almost put the industry out of business because people were buying hundreds and hundreds of copies of books and thought they were going to be worth millions and millions of dollars. And then people stopped buying millions of books. And then Marvel and DC are like, holy shit, we're going to go out of business because nobody's buying books. Yeah, I read about that in the in the history books. Ah, the history books. <laughs> no, it's true. Actually, I actually recently I picked up the first twenty five issues of Spawn. I think for twenty five dollars. So that just goes to show you. Oh well, then you have a book in there because uh, isn't doesn't Angel show up or Angela? Angela, yeah, Angela, yeah. I have I have that. I got that. That cheap, book is worth money. I know that. Yeah, I don't think the guy knew. I don't think the guy knew what he was doing. Ah, there you go. But no, I left comic books after the 90s reboot when like they killed Superman, they broke Batman's back, they uh, made Hal Jordan evil. I'm trying to think of what they did in the, the Marvel universe. But I was like, you know what? You're, you're changing all my heroes. Clone uh, saga. Yeah, the clone saga. I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a break for a little bit. And uh, then I came back when I heard that they were going to bring Hal Jordan back. I basically, when Hal Jordan comes back, I just, you know, I got to come back into the fold. Understandable. So you, that was, that's a good, I mean, at least a 10-year gap in there, though. It at is a, sol it's a solid 10-year gap. And I went through and, and I, I went back and reread the Clone Saga because I, I got all the books. Uh, you know, that's when, like, eBay started coming around really well for comic books. So you could just, like, grab stacks and stacks of books, and, super cheap, and, and read all those. I'm trying to think of what else I went through and, and reread that universe. I tried to read Heroes Reborn. And what was going on with Iron Man at that time? But that was just a that was a hot mess, hot mess. But yeah, Marvel. Um, I love them, and we'll get into it. They're they're what got me into comics. But yeah, they uh, they don't always have the best track record no, when it comes to getting people back into comics. Yeah, because um, right when Rebirth was was also right when New Avengers hit, and that was like Luke Cage, Wolverine, Spider Man, and Bendis starting to take over the universe. Oh, I went back and I got Ultimate Spider-Man. I was very anti-Ultimate Universe at the time, like when I heard it come out. But then I, I've I've kind of gone back into the Ultimate Universe and I really enjoyed those. 
What was okay? So, what was the first books you were reading as a kid? You know, I honestly, and, I, and I've racked my brain about it long before we were going to start this podcast. I don't remember the first comic I ever read. I was born in '92, so it was very much the cartoons of that time got me into superheroes: Batman, Spider Man. Um, somehow that translated to comic books. My dad, one of my dad's good friends, owns a comic shop in Queens, and I'd go to work with my dad. We'd go there, and I would just spend so much time digging through long boxes. It was it was Spider-Man, though. I don't remember the first one, but it was Spider-Man. And I, I was digging through all the old Stan and Steve Ditko ones that, I, you know, in the trades and the Marvel Masterworks, I would read. Um, JMS and John Romita Jr. were doing amazing at the time. I got really into that. Uh, and then the, the 80s stuff, too. I got really into, like, the alien costume saga. I loved Symbiote Spider-Man. So it was really Spider-Man from the start that got me into it. And then I kind of just kept rolling with Marvel. And I really was not a DC kid. I got into Mark Millar's Wolverine. I got into Bendis' New Avengers, like you mentioned. Like, it was all the Marvel of that early 2000s era, as well as the Silver Age stuff. I went back and read all of that old Stan and Jack stuff. It was just weird for a kid, but I had to. Yeah, because they relaunched Spider-Man. I'm trying to think of what the, how they did it with, like, they had this big Green Goblin crossover through Spectacular and Web and Amazing, and then... I feel I thought that like like Mary Jane and Spider-Man, they went to like Seattle or something like that. I'm kind of confusing a lot of storylines from that point in time. But I know that they restarted Spider-Man. Amazing. And that's the JMS run, right? With the Straczynski run? No, that was before they relaunched Amazing before JMS came on, I think. Because I have that. I have that new Amazing number one somewhere in a long box somewhere. And then during JMS's run is when they reset the numbering to legacy numbering. Somewhere in there. And it was weird because they would number it twice. They'd have the new numbering and then they'd have the legacy numbering under it. So like it would be twice numbered. That's the series where they did the, the World Trade Center issue, the, the black issue. Yes. Like what, 41 or something like that? Because uh, I went through. But that 30 was 30 something. 30 something. Because that was when um, Peter was like a college professor or a teacher. Yeah, he was a professor. And that was a really cool run, but then, but then they screw up Spider Man and introduce uh, the totems and stuff like that. He couldn't just be just a, a random hero. He had the, the. Yeah, I realized later on. Later on, I realized how much people kind of dislike JMS's run. Uh, but again, I'm that was that was when I was a kid, man. You you always gravitate towards what's out when you're a kid. Like, and I reread them recently, and I'm like, this still holds up. I still like this, and. Everyone's like, no, the totems, like they're terrible. No, you don't know. It takes out the point of what Spider-Man, and this is going to be debates forever. And I'm glad you're not EJ because I would have punched EJ in the face by now. But Spider-Man, when he first came out, was like an every kid type of person. It was just a random event that made him Spider-Man. So any kid could be like, I could have, you know, went on a field trip and I could have got bitten by a radioactive spider. And so that was what the endearing quality was to it. And then you have Straczynski being like, oh, no, you've always been chosen to be the spider. Fuck you. Yeah, I get that. I, I do. I get it. And it's not necessarily the, the best run on Spider-Man. Again, I have a soft spot because I was a kid. No, but it's at least not as bad as like what has come out lately. Like You and I both agree on Spider-Man now. And I, I don't think what JMS did is nearly as bad as like what Slot's been doing recently. No, but did you hear what happens in the the new Spider-Man book? And uh, spoiler, spoiler, if you haven't read, is it Peter Parker or is it just spe- Spectacular? What's it called? It's Peter Parker. It's Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man. 
So spoiler alert, if you haven't read the book, don't like don't listen right now. But but they brought his sister into the book. So I guess people who had like loot crate got the book early. I try to avoid spoilers until the book comes out, unless we get, you know, a preview or something. But. No, but that, that I was I was hoping, and I, I apologize for spoiling the book for you, Anthony, but I wanted your, like, true response on this. Uh, so I just threw it at you, and I ruined the book for you, but I apologize. I thought we were getting back to the roots of Spider-Man, and they're like, oh, here's his sister that nobody really talks about. I guess I guess in a Mark Wade run, he Mark Wade introduced Spider-Man's sister. Yeah, it sounds vaguely familiar to me. And I love Mark Wade's Spider-Man. I mean, I don't know. It hasn't come out yet. I have not read it. I am, I'm a, I'm a hopeful person. I'm very optimistic. I'm cautiously optimistic with a lot of things. And I'm willing to give anything a chance. If they don't execute it, though, if I read it and I'm like, this is clunky, this is bad, fine. But if they execute it properly, that's fine. I just, I just want a good story. I just want a good story. It depends. I really hope this podcast doesn't turn, in us, turn into us uh, bitching about Spider-Man. For a hundred episodes, <laughs> yeah, it's because you just change the title to "Bitching About Spider Man." <laughs> what's in? What's your number ones of like your favorite storylines? Do you have any? Of course you do. We're comic. Um, the alien, the alien costume saga, obviously. But like I said, when I was a kid, Symbiote Spider Man was my jam. Like, and I was like that annoying kid that had to tell everybody about things. So I still have aunts and uncles who, to this day, are like, "Oh yeah, when you were a kid, you." You were like, you would bug us and, you know, oh, you don't know about the alien costume? Like, let me tell you. And I would go get my comic books and show them the whole origin of the symbiote costume and stuff. Like, I was that kid. Uh, I, so the I, alien costume. I, I was trying to transition to non-Spider-Man comic books. <laughs> Apologies, but I was still, you know. Um, okay, you were still that okay. little kid like, hey, do you know about the Spider-Man costume? It's an alien. <laughs> <laughs> okay, non-Spider-Man related. There was... Uh, enemy of the state mark millar's wolverine enemy of the state was big on me when i was a kid that really for some reason resonated and that, that's what got me into wolverine i really started digging into wolverine at that point which millar actually had kind of a weird influence because civil war also just goes to show you how kind of young i am civil war was you know big when i was you know young and uh, that was really big on me non-superhero related i have to say archie was a huge influence on me Good you know, God. I was like that kid. What, what does it matter with you? My mom. I love Archie. I still love Archie. Mark Wade reinvented Archie books. Yeah, yeah. But I was a kid. I would I would go to the supermarket and I would read Archie comics like crazy. That shows how how uh, different our realms of growing up was. Because with me, before like Spider Man, all that stuff, like I would always grab the GI Joe comic books because I loved the cartoon. So I had a ton of beat up, tore up GI Joe comic books that I used to like read all the time. And spoiler alert, they actually kill G.I. Joe people in the books, which they never did in the cartoons. <laughs> so a little traumatic for a kid. Dude, I was going to go back and read those. <laughs> Way to spoil. No, I was not I was not an 80s kid. So a lot of those like G.I. Joe comics and even to this day, like I can't really get into Transformers comics because I just I missed the boat on those cartoons, I guess. And I've tried. No, it'll be but moving it, forward. Oh, moving forward, we're moving forward. I like that transition. That was a good transition by you, sir. I was going to say moving forward because you wanted to know like storylines. And it's much easier, I think, when I get back into comics. I moved from New York to Florida in like 2007. And I just fell out of comics. I didn't have my source anymore. I had other things to concern me. But I, I started coming back when Dark Knight Rises came out, the movie. I was like, I need to know what influenced these movies. So I went out. I read you know, year one, Dark Knight Returns, Long Halloween. And that is the one, man. Like Long Halloween 
is still to this day like my favorite Batman story, I think. And and that's what started getting me into DC because like I said, when I was a kid, I was full time Marvel uh, with a little DC. But when I got back into it, hardcore DC. Like I read any Batman, I read all the Batman stories that I could find when I got older. When I came back into comics, and this was the thing is, if you asked me any of the writers of the comic books that I read when from the 80s and 90s, I couldn't tell you, but I could tell you every artist. You know, growing up, like it was all about the art over substance kind of thing, and that's probably why some of the image books are worth, are penniless right now. But then, as soon as I got back into comic books in you know the early 2000s, it was names were just starting to drop. Where it was like a Bendis, it was a Jeff Johns, uh, Mark Wade. Even though Mark Wade had been doing stuff in the 80s and 90s, you know, but like his name was prevalent. And then Mark Millar came on the scene as well. And that's where I think we started to hit the golden age of comic books is when you get these insane writers coming on. And I think that we're still in the golden age of comic books with all the stuff that Image is doing. And you could just rattle off a multitude of names of books ever Image and what they've done. Yeah. And it's just insane. I'm, I'm definitely a superhero guy, but if you just want to read good literary works, there's some amazing shit going on. No, absolutely. Image is actually my favorite publisher right now. And I'm like you, I grew up on superheroes. Obviously we've just been ranting about it for however long, but now image is my number one. And I think the first image book I read after getting back into comics was sex criminals. And I just would pick, I just, and I just like, now I just devour it. Like if there's a new image, number one, I read it. I'm on board. Like I had, like it's, they're killing it. They're the best. The only book that I like has kind of during my drought of since I left comic books after Flashpoint and New 52, like 2012, like only book I've been re reading consistently is Walking Dead. And then, you know, a few issues of image here and there. I kind of. In this time, I've, I've read like the Superior Spider-Man catching up with what Slot's been doing with Spider-Man. And we're going back to that. But it was interesting when you, like, when you got into comic books as a kid because it was like the anti-hero time. Identity Crisis broke down heroes. And then, you know, there was a lot of distrust in the DC universe with the, that crisis that came after that where everybody was like, Batman is hiding things from us. And it, it, was, it was a darker hero time. And you had Civil War going on and... Cap got killed, and that's a, that's an interesting time to get into comic books as a kid because it, I wouldn't say it was the most kid-friendly time. No, and it's interesting, actually. I never really thought about it, but maybe that's why I wasn't really a DC kid because the little DC I did read is exactly what you just said. Like, I read Identity Crisis when, I was, when it came out, which I think I was like 12 when it came out, so I probably didn't fully grasp everything that was going on. But that might have been the first DC book I read because I remember my dad's friend who owned the shop. He gave it to me. Like we were hanging out one night. You know, the families were getting together and he was like, oh, here, this just came out. You might like it. Um, so and then Infinite Crisis came not long after that. And I read that. But I wasn't reading the surrounding titles. Like I wasn't reading Batman or Wonder Woman, Superman. Like I just just reading the main event stories. So maybe that's kind of why I wasn't really gravitating towards DC because they were kind of breaking the superhero you know, spirit. And when I got into comics as a kid, it was right after uh, Death in the Family and they killed off Jason Todd. And 
it was right when they introduced Tim Drake. And it was that storyline of like Batman needs Robin because if there is no Robin, Batman goes spiraling into a dark, dark place. And it was like this balance story. And then, and then Tim Drake had two miniseries and I think I was, you know, 13, 14 at the time. And I was like, this is awesome. Cause I mean, like as a kid, he's like, he's my age and he's going on these adventures and he's hanging out with Batman. Like it was, it was really cool to get in on that time. And then, Quickly after that, you know, that's when they like killed Superman, made Green Lantern bad, and and broke Batman's back. And I was like, oh, now we're changing everything up. But there was like a so little. So we both kind of we both kind of had them uh, breaking down superheroes in our youth. The Superman thing was was insane. Batman was it's, they had already did Superman, so Batman was kind of like seemed like it was uh, just repeating what they did with Batman. I mean, what they did with Superman, like they couldn't kill Batman off too, but they were like, okay, we have to take him out of the picture somehow. It was, it was weird. It was a weird time, weird time for DC. I wonder what they were, but then you get like a Kyle Rayner out of that. And then they stuff his girlfriend in a refrigerator right away. Like so weird. Yeah. So weird. Who's, who's my personal favorite Grand Lantern, I think is Kyle. I don't know why. Maybe because he's basically Peter Parker with a Green Lantern ring. I don't know, but I gravitate towards Kyle for sure. The 2000s just became all about writers. You know, anything, anytime Josh Whedon ever hopped on a book, Astonishing X-Men or Runaways, I was like, oh my God, this was glorious. And then Mark Millar with his Ultimates, I was like, this is brilliant, brilliant stuff that I went back and revisited. Yeah, we're in a writer's renaissance, which I love. I, you know, I'm an English major. I gravitate towards writing. I'm an aspiring writer, kind of. So I definitely gravitate towards that. But it is, it's funny, because we were at Megacon even talking to artists who are kind of bummed about it. Like they want the artist to get more recognition right now. Well, I, that's the thing is I think artists are kind of like wide receivers in like football. They want the ball. They want the touchdown. They want the fame. And writers are kind of like, I don't know where I'd put writers on the, on the football field, but they're more introverted. They're the QB, man. They're, but, yeah, they're the more, QB. But, they're, but they're more introverted. You know, I mean, like to be like writers – in general, or I feel like are a little bit more. Well, that's the thing. They write, you know, if they, I mean, I know it's a skill level thing, but artists, like they put their emotions on their sleeve and they put it out there and writers like internalize and put things down on paper kind of thing. Like it's, it's a, two different parts of the brain, I think. But then you also, they're, they are a QB in the sense that they're the play caller, right? They're, they're laying out the play and then, but they're open. If, if their wide receiver wants to come in and say, Oh, what if I zag left instead of right? They're open to that. But, they're still the play callers in the end. Yeah, but then you get a Dan Slott who's like, I just want to crush all your childhood memories. God. Uh, welcome welcome back to bitching about Spider-Man. <laughs> Sorry. I'm trying to think of any... I'm trying to think if there's any other person that uh, has done that to a, like a character or not. Like Because he's been on the book forever. Forever. Yeah, yes. And it hasn't always been bad. No, but it, it I, a, I'm a, I'm not a fan of dissolving of the marriage. Like I would have I would have been more of a firm believer in killing off Aunt May before dissolving the marriage magically. Like I think that so would. Were you okay when they did that back in the day? No, I was fucking livid when 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 that happened. I was like, you got to be kidding me! And and Joe Casada's like, we've we uh, the writers can't write a good story when they're married. And I was like, well, get better writers. I mean, like when your when your athlete can't hit for average, 
They don't like throw the ball softer at him. They don't, you know, they, they, they fire him and then they get a better athlete to write a story. And, um, there's so many other things that they could have done with that story or, or with Peter Parker if you wanted the character to move forward and evolve. And, you know, if you killed off Aunt May, that would have been uh, something tragic where he would have had to deal with that. And that could have put strain on the marriage where that could have had it falter apart. Um, instead, they're like, Mephisto's like, hey, magic, boom. And uh, it, just, it just kills me. And then is Jameson still related to Peter Parker? Are they still brothers? Yes and no. So Aunt May was married to oh, J. They, Jonah Jameson's they, they got father, divorced? but they they just killed him off recently. Oh, oh okay. That's good. That's good. Because that, that's the thing is they're like, okay, we're not going to kill off Aunt May, but what we're going to do is something really, really dumb afterwards. <sighs> yeah, they just they, they just killed him off, which kind of launched the, the new clone conspiracy because everything Dan Slott does has to just be retelling the clone saga. We need to stop talking about Dan Slott because we actually have a really great writer that we yes. talk to and that we want to share with you. And, and we talked with Scott Snyder. Uh, we, met, we met Scott Snyder in person at Megacon. Uh, but he's been a, a relatively uh, big supporter of Monkeys Fighting Robots. Whenever we put a, uh, a review out there, we get like retweets and comments and stuff like that. And, and um he actually pushed for us to get this interview, so I'm I'm really excited to share it with you. Yeah, he did. He's a, he's a really great guy for someone who's reached the level of success he is to to take the time uh, and not only have an interview with us, but like you said, push for it and request it from us almost. So here you go, Scott Snyder and Anthony and I are going to talk about batman metal and we're also talking about batman all-star batman so enjoy this interview and we'll be back with you in 20 minutes hey scott thank you for taking the time to speak with us today yeah thanks for doing it sorry i'm a little late i was getting a little verbose (laughs) my bad all right so i'm catching up with all-star batman so over the weekend i've i was reading them and stuff and does everybody know that bruce wayne and batman are the same person now in the dc universe no, 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 they don't. Hush always has known since Hush. So, um, and Two-Face has known since the New 52. Uh, Tomasi established that, where he had him call him Bruce and all that stuff. So I was just trying to play within continuity, but that's it, just them. Everybody else thinks that he's a mysterious person that they don't know. But I would, I would make this argument, which is that I sort of believe that everybody knows that he's Bruce, but that... The hard thing is really, I said it in All-Star, but I, in the first arc, but I've always believed that it's like a willful suspension of disbelief because you would rather believe that there's this incredible, mysterious guy flying through the air than it's somebody you know that is Bruce Wayne, that is a human, fallible individual. And so they sort of let it be something they believe in, the way kids that are just a little too old to believe in Santa Claus still like to. And then on top of that, I think he also makes it impossible to prove he is, meaning you know, you could trace him all the way to the Batmobile to Wayne Manor. He could be like, so what? You didn't prove it. You know what I mean? He'd be like, all of his records and everything, I'm sure, like so crazy buried that it, the, the hard thing is actually legally getting your hands on any proof that he is Batman. Even if you unmasked him, I feel like he'd have a thing where he's like, fake news. He'd be like, what? <laughs> and Bruce Wayne would appear somewhere across town and you'd at that moment in a contingency plan and you wouldn't know what to believe. So 
yes, I don't really think it's that hard to prove that Bruce Wayne is Batman and that the people that work with him or fight him are aware of that. You know, I think it's more the sort of the, the people that are in, you know, fans of Batman, they don't really want to unmask him. And the people that are after him, I think it's incredibly hard to prove he is who he is. So what's the point? Yeah. Hey, Scott, Anthony here. The current arc of All-Star, it's very Alfred-centric. You know, you're delving into Alfred's backstory. You're telling it from his point of view. What is it that you think makes a character like Bruce Wayne's butler just so endearing after all these years that he warrants like a whole arc? Well, for me, I mean, I think he's one of the, the most interesting and richest characters in, you know, in the, in the DCU or in comics even. For me personally, uh, the thing that excites me about him or that interests me about him is the ways in which he's sort of that father who has a kid who does something that he at once admires tremendously and yet fears. So, you know, if my son turned out, that if it turned out my son wanted to be a firefighter or a soldier, you know, those are jobs that I respect tremendously and would be proud of him for, for doing, but I'd be terrified of him doing those and hate the fact that he did them all the time. So it, Alfred is sort of speaks to a very raw nerve for me <laughs> personally, and this arc in particular is largely about that, where he's sort of constantly struggling with the idea that he works so hard to protect Bruce and heal Bruce, and then he worries, on the other hand, that by doing so, maybe he's protecting him almost too much for some of the harsh realities of his own situation, or even the sort of mortal condition, you know, for Bruce, who seems to believe in nothing but himself all the time. I love how in his narration he refers to Bruce as his son constantly. Thank you. That actually was something I had to go back and forth with DC about because <laughs> they, they weren't sure about him openly calling him his son. And I, I was saying that I thought at the end of the day, Alfred would never say that he was Bruce's father that in the way that Bruce should think of him as his father, but he would a hundred percent call Bruce his son. And, and that he thinks of Bruce as, as somebody he cares for and loves as much as he could ever love his own son. And I want to switch over to Forge, and we're kind of just going to bounce back and forth. I read Forge, and this is definitely like a crisis-level event lead-up to it. But my big question is, did you have to put Plastic Man in a Silly Putty container? Yeah, man. Plastic <laughs> Man, he's, he's in that egg. That's what he's in for a while. <laughs> You'll see him come out of the egg eventually, but he stays in the egg for right now. I love the egg. I think that's so great. <laughs> the egg is like my favorite thing. So anyway, no, yes. Plastic Man will make a, he has a role both in metal and then more importantly, spinning out of metal into a, a really cool storyline and book that is TB, to be announced very soon. Yes. And I know Egg that forever. <laughs> and I know that you mentioned that metal is like a reward for the fans and you want this to be fun and, and a great event as a reward for what's been going on with Rebirth. But when you, when you use the words fun, how is a crisis-level event supposed to ha carry any weight? Like, are heroes at risk in metal? Yeah, well, uh, they're, of course they're at risk. But, I mean, here's the thing. I'm not calling it a crisis because, for me, those those have certain baggage that are, are good baggage. I mean, I love Infinite Crisis, and I love Final Crisis, and I love Crisis on Infinite Earths, I mean, as three of the best DC stories ever. But what I'd say is this story is, is less about sort of um, – doing something dramatically subtractive or, or also corrective to the DCU than it is about being additive in that way. Because Rebirth, like you pointed out, has put us in a great spot where Jeff has a lot of answers to some of the questions people have about continuity coming up in Doomsday Clock. 
And so do we have consequences? Oh, the hundred percent, like there's no point, you know, in doing a story unless there's going to be big stories spinning out of it. But that said, I don't want it to be something where it's like, who will die? That's not, that's not the spirit of this one, you know, and that's not what I'm after here. I don't, I'm not out. I was never out when I did Batman to kill anybody or to take things away from the mythology. It was always about trying to add. So there's a ton of stuff that's going to be coming out through metal, both as not just crossovers and those things, but actual books that get their start sort of in some of the concepts of metal. It'll be announced soon at San Diego and other places. There are going to be a bunch of stories that I'm doing coming out of it, both with things like Challengers and another book that's going to be announced really soon, and then also stuff that I have planned for post-metal um, and a rearrangement of some of the stuff that I'm doing. So there's a lot of consequence when it comes to the story you're going to be getting on the other side of it. But the other thing, I don't want people to feel like we're going to do something that's like a crisis and that just as we're getting things back on track and kind of setting setting the universe up in a way that people are happy with, we're just going to break it apart again. That's not, that's not what this is. What this really is is it's about the discovery of a whole new area of the cosmology that's unexplored and unknown. And what happens when that area comes to test our heroes? I could even say test our heroes' metal, which I haven't said before, <laughs> which is super corny and hokey to say, but it's true. Uh, ultimately, that's what this is for. We want it to be something that's personal. You know, it has a lot of part for stuff that Greg and I talk about privately when it comes to how there are moments you can suddenly find yourself in a situation that feels like a story you never thought was possible. And the Dark Multiverse sort of... Um, isn't just evil versions of our characters or something that simple or reductive. It's much more along those lines of dark matter, dark energy, something that's reactive and unknown and imperceptible and scary and, and, and really unexplored. And in that way, sort of when it comes here and, it, and it, it affects the DCU, it does things that seem almost impossible. And I think that's, that's what the story's about for me and Greg, is the ways in which sometimes before you even know it, it feels like the entire story you're in has spun into a different direction than you ever thought was possible and something very scary and dark. And how hard it is to, to, to get purchased on that. That said, my way has always been, whether it's Zero Year, which is, you know, very personal about what I wanted Batman to mean for my kids, Death of the Family, which was about what it's in fears of being a dad. <laughs> All those things, I like to bury, bury those ideas or bury those feelings inside a, a lot of comic bombast, because especially with a story like this, I do want it to remind us how fun comics can be over the summer, how fun these events can be, how kind of bombastic and epic and zany they can be, especially kind of on the anniversary of the 100th anniversary of, of Kirby's birth. You know, you want it to feel like it has that crazy spirit and energy. So that's what I'm going for with it. I really hope people dig it. Again, there's big consequences, but it's it's not grim. I'm not looking to, like, kill off a swath of characters. I'm not looking to suddenly tell you that all the characters' history is re-erased again. That's not what I'm after here. It's celebratory, and I want it to be additive. I want you to come out and be like, holy shit, we now have so many good series and so many good stories and so many new areas of the DCU to explore that we didn't realize. This is great. In The Forge, you have three different artists on there. What's it like writing a script with three artists, considering they all work differently. I know Greg, you say, likes to use sparse scripts, even trying to cut your scripts down. But what about guys like Jim Lee, Andy Kubert, you know, John Romita Jr.? How do you how do you tackle a script like that? It's interesting because that, that's a great question. I mean, they all work really differently, as does, you know, Greg, Raphael. Everyone has their own way. And I think the, the best part of it is kind of getting to know each artist and asking them how they want to work and then 
adapting your own writing style to do that. And James is great at that as well. And I can't give him enough credit um, for this book. But, you know, I talked to Andy. I've worked, luckily, I've worked with all these people before. Andy only briefly on um, uh, one issue of Batman. I think it was 18. But I know him pretty well. We've become good friends over the years because we've done a lot of cons together, as with Adam also. And so I know how he likes to work and how Jim likes to work. And John, obviously, I know really well, too, from All-Star. So you try and do the script in a way that gives them each that latitude that they like and then gives them the stuff that they, they want. So we divided it up so that it would be sort of this these sections that feature these characters will be this artist, these sections will feature this artist, because they had picked those sections they wanted to draw. And that, you know, Andy was excited about sort of doing a bit of a tribute to his father and doing some of the Hawkman sections. And so then we try and write it in a way that we know really fits their style, where for Andy, it's giving a sense, the emotional sense of each scene, but giving some room. He likes to see the narration you're going to use. John doesn't really care if he has the narration or not, or the, the captions. He just really wants the beats, like the actual physical beats of what happens. You know, and Jim is a bit of a mishmash. Jim likes the whole shebang, and he likes a lot of area to play with, where he can do a lot of design work. So it was like, hey, you know, what do you think the cave would look like here? What do you think, you know... Mr. Miracle's crazy key would look like, and all of that kind of stuff is, is just sort of Jim's forte. So it's like that, you know, and then it becomes really fun because you're you're giving everybody sort of the room to make what you did a lot better than you would have made it yourself had you constricted yourself to just write in one format. And when uh, Tom and you were talking at Megacon and we were kind of flies on the wall, you guys were kind of really historians on the DC kind of culture. Are there any books that we should like read that give little hints towards metal from old the old times of DC or Well, I mean there's so much there's so much in metal that touches on things from before. I mean, as you can see just from the forge, there's stuff that touches on crisis and infinite crisis and there's stuff honestly in metal 1 that's going to touch on Grant's run in really big ways uh, from Batman. It's going to refer to Tom's run there's stuff that goes all the way back to Batman and the Outsiders, you know, and, and some of the other stuff that goes back to uh, Jeff John's run on Hawkman. And <laughs> so there isn't really like a guide. I would say like, hey, go read these books necessarily. But it's meant to be, it is meant to be sort of a love letter to the DCU. I mean, I've done Batman for a long time and I have stories. I still have a couple stories I really want to do with Sean Murphy and a couple other artists for Batman and, and I'm doing those. But I've never gotten to play outside that sandbox except for writing Swamp Thing and Superman, which are also contained books. So the idea of getting all the all the toys all of a sudden, you know, the, the stuff that's been more sort of Jeff's sandbox, Jeff was incredibly generous and was like, here, take it, do whatever you want. I went out there and vetted the story with him twice in December and January, and he told me all about Doomsday Clock, and we went back and forth and coordinated. And having all those toys all of a sudden, you want it to feel like, out of control where it's like, I want it to feel like, look at all these characters that I love from the animated stuff from justice league unlimited and justice league and all the way down to the comics from things like kingdom come to, to incontinuity stuff from my childhood. So it really is just sort of, it's almost too much to wrap your arms around. So you just kind of go where this story follows. And for me, this story really wove its way through some of the more science exploratory sixties characters too, from, you know, uh, I don't want to give it away. <laughs> you'll see, you'll see a bunch of stuff from Hawkman and and other characters that sort of fit in with his mission with metal, and then you know, 
you see obviously Plastic Man, other things like that. So there's a lot. There's really, it definitely is like, it won't be, if I totally fall on my face with this one, it won't be for like lack of scope or lack of trying to, to touch all the stuff that I love about the DCU. It will probably be the opposite just for under its own weight of <laughs> like so happy and excited to use all the characters that I'm like, oh, wait, I forgot to end that story. <laughs> so we have the Forge now, and then next month we get the casting before Metal. What's, uh, what's, the, what's the difference between the casting and the Forge, and, and what's the thought process between breaking it up into two books instead of doing an oversized prelude issue like Countdown was? Uh, I don't know why they decided to do that. I mean, why they decided to break it up, if it was just to give the artists more room or if they thought it would be a better format than just giving you a massive book before. But the difference is literally part one, part two. Like, the, for, the casting picks up exactly where the forge left off. So it's, it's, it's part one, part two. There's no, it's a seamless story that just goes one to the next. So there's no, it's not like two separate one shots. It's like, you know, one thing. And to be honest, like, my, I was frustrated that we couldn't just call it Prelude to Metal Part 1 and Part 2, but the thinking was really just that we hadn't announced Metal when we right. started working on them and solicited them initially because we wanted to announce it with Greg, with Art, and all that stuff. So we used kind of metallurgy and the idea of the Forge created and the idea of sort of the casting, all of it being, you know, metalworking terms and then Metal. So the casting, it's part two. It will be answering some questions from the Forge, I'm guessing, because we get a lot of questions in the Forge. Yeah, it literally, it literally picks up where the Forge left off. And you talked about taking the script out to Jeff Johns, and we talked about Crisis and how this wasn't a crisis. And I loved what Jeff Johns did with the DC Universe and how he expanded it. I'm a huge Hal Jordan fan and, and what they did with the rings and how he brought in that whole expanded universe. So are we getting something similar with the metal where it's like, cause there was matter, there's antimatter. Now there's dark matter. Is this, where was your influences on this? Yeah, it's that idea. It's the idea of sort of trying to be expansive and additive. And, you know, that's a great example. Like the idea of, of the whole sort of expansion of the core or, you know, in smaller ways, what we tried to do with adding court of owls or at, it's always just adding to the mythology in ways that you can. And here, so this is something that plays in conjunction with Grant's multiversity. It actually uses the map from multiversity, you'll see in the, in the story. I mean, there's, so it's trying to sort of um, just give new lanes to drive in within the existing cosmology and not break it or change it or do something like that, but say, wouldn't it make sense that in our universe, we just discovered there's matter and antimatter and then this vast ocean of dark matter that we never knew really existed before. Doesn't it make sense that there might be a multiverse that's, just, that's like that as well. Do you know what I mean? That format. So it just sort of lent itself to this exploratory kind of spirit. So, yes. So, you know, Jeff has been wonderful about helping me and coaching me when it comes to how to do something of this scope. Uh, he's been really generous with different pieces, with the Hawkman mythology in particular, and helping me through it in different ways and giving me advice. So, you know, we want to do it in our own way. Jeff has always been kind of like a the big brother who's kind of like the varsity letterman jacket, you know, like school star kind of big brother, you know, who you're always, you're always sort of looking up to. And I do look up to him tremendously when it comes to these things, especially And you have to find your own way of doing it. I don't want to just replicate what he did either. So that's why we're going at it a little bit differently. You know, I had somebody once described to me, they were like, Jeff Johns is kind of like, like, like that. And they use that term where they were like, the, like the, the quarterback, like the big, 
the big brother, and you're kind of more like the little brother that like smokes behind the shed sometimes. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, I'll take it. I'll take it if I get to be in like the bad garage band, but it's kind of cool. Whatever, sure. So metal is almost has that spirit of being like, yes, I want to show that we can that we can sort of hit 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 a lot of the sort of sweet spots that Jeff is so good at hitting when it comes to the celebratory fun nature of these stories when it comes to the DCU. But I also want to do it in our own way. And that's why it's kind of a little bit more raw and has a different kind of edge where, you know, when you see the cover for number one, it says metal. I mean, it's like, it's definitely one of those images that you're going to be like, huh, DC really went and let them do that. Huh? So it's, I want that, you know, too. I want it to be like, spirit and tradition of what Jeff does, but something that's ours and new and different. You've been writing Batman for, for a while now, and you're, you're a lot of people's premier Batman writer in the modern age. When, you know, years from now, when people are looking back, what, what legacy do you want to have left on Batman when people look back and think, oh, Scott Snyder's Batman, like it hit, it was this, this, and this? Huh. That's a tough question. I guess like the, the thing that I'm proudest of with it, honestly, is that I, I, I like to think that our take on him, it really it really sort of evolved during the second or third year we were on the book. And for me, the thing that I really, I think, made him mine, my version of him at least, is that he's so much more about sort of inspiring people, good people to come out of the shadows and that stuff than he is about scaring bad guys back into them. He's not really a figure of intimidation so much as he is this broad, almost international figure of bravery. And he says, I'm going to fight these incredibly abstract, huge, monstrous things in the form of my villain so that you will go out and face the things that seem insurmountable uh, to you nowadays when it comes to, you know, whether those are personal challenges, but more often we're trying to lean into stories that have to do with things that seem overwhelmingly scary, you know, and All-Star in particular and those those issues that were ends of the earth, you know, we're, we're trying to show these fears about how the world might end, you know, when it comes to plague or cyber warfare or cataclysm or solipsism or all these different things that are much bigger than any of us could handle. Batman says, well, I'm going to show you how I'm going to fight this monstrous extension of those things so that you can take the real world baby steps towards approaching those problems without fear. So I, I hope that came through, especially in zero year and, and afterwards. Above all, honestly, you know, I hope people walk away seeing that we gave it our all. I gave it my all on every issue, and, you know, that 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 I tried to make it personal and, and fun at the same time. So, I don't know. It's hard because I'm still in it, <laughs> you know, in my own way. Still, I still have some of those stories left, even if I'm not on the main book. So, it's it's hard to kind of reflect when I'm still, still pushing through it. Scott, thank you for your time, and uh, best of luck with All-Star Batman and Metal. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. That was Scott Snyder. And if you didn't love him more after this interview, you're not alive. Because how he talks about Batman and what he wants to do with it is such a refreshing change compared to other writers where they just want to destroy stuff that was before. But I feel like Scott Snyder respects the legacy of what he's dealing with and he wants to do something. He wants to put positive out into the world and you could really sense that. Everything he says he's doing with metal is, as he says, additive. Like he doesn't want anything to be subtractive and whether, and it, it shows in his past runs, whether it's zero year, which is, you know, quote unquote retelling the origin, it's, but it's just, it's adding, it's all additive. 
He's not, he doesn't want to take away what Frank Miller did or what any other Batman writer did. He just wants to do right by the character and add to his already rich legacy. And everybody has basically said the best part of the new 52 is, was Batman. And they've kind of kept that together. Yeah, that's what got me, you know, back into comics again. Like I said earlier, you know, I kind of came in after Dark Knight Rises. And then that was right around the time the new 52 started. And I was like, well, this is just the perfect time for me to, to jump on board. And actually, the first, one of the first comics I bought when I got back into comics was Batman 17, which was the end of the uh, Death of the Family arc. And I bought it. I realized it was the end of a story. So I went back. I caught up on all of Snyder and Capullo's Batman. And uh, he was a big part of me getting back into weekly comics. It's tough getting into, back into weekly comics once you're out of it and stuff because you got to get that ritual. You got to get a good comic book store. I mean, you have a decent comic book store. I am still not in the best location of a comic book store yet. So it's, I have to make sure that I get my ass up out of the seat and go to my comic book store. I still like Emerald City. It's one of the best comic book stores in the Bay Area, and I, I, I enjoy going to it. And I love Aaron at a comic shop. Aaron, Aaron's a great guy, and they have a bar. I mean, you can get beer and comics. Yeah, it's the best. You go, I've done that plenty of times. I go, I buy my comics, I go sit at the bar, and I read them. It's amazing. A one-stop shop for just reading comic books. That's, that's, that's brilliant. I'm, I'm really excited about this podcast because I didn't realize that I was going to fall out of comic books again when I got into comic books. But, you know, owning, owning the comic book store, and then when we moved down here, I had to say goodbye to the comic book store. I feel like I needed a break from the industry. But... Dan DiDio and his passion, which I couldn't stand in the early 2000s. He's one of the main reasons why I'm getting back into comic books because, like, Dan was just, listen, we're putting out some amazing stuff. You got to enjoy it. And it just, that, I don't know, an infectious spirit that he had just got me really excited. And, and then, you know, with Scott Snyder and Greg Rucka, God, you talk to Greg Rucka for five minutes and you're like, I, I need to read everything he has. It's true. I mean, I was thinking about it recently, and if you look at the talent that DC has right now, I mean, I, I still read Marvel. I read a lot of Marvel still, but when you break it down talent-wise, like Marvel has Jason Aaron, they have Mark Wade, they have some big names, but if, if you're looking at DC, like you just said, I mean, you have Greg Rucka, you have Scott Snyder, like the list just goes, uh, it, I feel like it runs a little bit longer on the DC side right now. Yeah, they might be deeper in talent, or they're recruiting quality talent i remember when uh grayson first came out and i remember reading the usa today article and they're like oh you know uh dc got this guy he used to be ex-cia tom king to write grayson with with tim seeley who i know from up in chicago and i was like oh that's interesting so i read it for tim seeley and i was like oh they just brought some schmo in and now that schmo is is writing batman yeah, Tom King is honestly one of my favorite writers right now. And I'm going to plug one of his things right now. If you're looking to get back into comics, Matt, you need to go read his Vision comic, like right now. Like you, you you're going to end book. podcasting, you go to Emerald City, you buy his Vision. You love that book. It's one of the best comics of the last few years. It's incredible. How many issues is it? Twelve issues. Twelve issues. Yeah, and actually, they're they're re-releasing it right now in director's cut format. So every they're doing six issues, and each issue is going to have 
two issues of the vision plus a bunch of bonus content. So yeah, a couple of different ways I mean, you could read it. The bonus content is going to be all bullshit. It's just some reason to charge you like eight bucks for a book. I know it's a cash grab, but and normally I don't fall for cash grabs, but I, just, I love I love that book so much, and I love Tom King that like yeah, I want to read his script excerpts and I want to read his original pitch and I want to read that stuff for some reason. I wonder what the hardcover trade's going for for that. I mean, because it's twelve issues, four bucks a book. You're at like forty six bucks. What is it like? A, like a fifty dollar trade? So the hardcover's not out yet. They have two. They have two soft covers. They have like two six issue soft covers, uh, okay. but they don't have the hardcover yet. That's the thing now is I used to be into getting single issues and I still love single issues, but I will gladly grab a hardcover over a trade paperback. I feel like it's worth the extra money. Nah, I'm I'm still all about the trades. So, I mean, there's some things like I might buy, buy the Vision hardcover, but I'm I'm all about the trades. I don't know if it's just easier for me to read when I'm laying back in bed, but I'm all about the trades. Well, if you're laying back in bed, you just use your iPad and you just like read it digitally. I can't see. I'm. I, and I do read digital comics. I read a lot of digital comics, but I just don't. I don't. If I really love something and I really want to read something, I have to read it hard. Hard copy. I was completely opposed to digital comics for the longest time. I owned a comic book store that was like people taking money out of my mouth or out of my belly or wherever they take money from. Pocket, pocket. That's the body part. That's not really a body part. But no, it's not at all. It's not a body part at all. <gasps> like I got. Uh, all the Walking Dead digitally, and I ran through all that. I think all the Superior Spider-Man I did digitally as well and and did all that run. And it's just cool to just kind of just keep swiping and just keep going. And I I love buy, I love the actual tangible book, but I do see some pros to to the digital stuff. Oh, absolutely. Like I said, I read a lot of digital comics. And again, that was a big part of me getting back into it. I would probably wouldn't have been able to catch up on comics as much as I can. Because I basically caught up on all of the comics that I missed when I fell out of, you know, reading them. And it's all it's because of digital because they're so easily accessible. So there's definitely pros to it. I'm not doubting that one bit. Okay, so let's talk about this comic book podcast that we're doing. So our plan is to uh, review a book or two each week, uh, try to get a creator interview. If we don't get a creator interview, then we were going to go to one of our beat reporters on Monkeys Fighting Robots because Monkeys Fighting Robots has like 50 writers on staff. But the comic book section probably has about 12 writers, and each writer has a different beat, whether it be Archie Comics, which I make fun of all the time, uh, to Marvel, to DC, to indie stuff, to IDW. We basically have a tons of people writing content in reviews or news or op-ed. So we're going to have a lot of interesting people to kind of talk to and bring you that information about the comic book industry. Because what I want to do is I want to promote the comic book industry. Uh, I, I love comic books. Uh, it's, it's been a business I've been part of multiple different times, whether it's Monkeys Fighting Robots or the comic book vault back in the day. I love the medium. I think it's a great medium. I think we're going through a great time right now. And I want to give you a chance with each episode where you hopefully learn something new about the comic book industry. And then you walk into your comic book store and then you buy a new book because of what we've talked about. And that's, that's my goal. What's your goal? I think that's, that's pretty, it's pretty spot on. I mean, we spent a lot of time today talking about our backstories and just like old comics, but Moving forward, what I think people really need to know is that we're going to give you reading recommendations. If you are looking for things to get into, if you're looking for books to read that you may not have heard about yet, this is where you are going to find that information. Awesome. 
uh, we're going to be here every Wednesday. That's we're we're going to release these on Wednesday so that hopefully you can um, listen on Wednesday or and pick out the comic books that you want to get or you know you get the comic book, you read it, and then you kind of review the book while we're reviewing the book, and that's what you're listening to. But we, I really do appreciate you listening to this podcast and giving us a chance. And Anthony, I can't wait to talk to you next week. I can't wait either. And guys, make sure you comment. If there's any books that you want us to check out, make sure you comment. If there's any books that you think Matt needs to catch up on because he's fallen out of for so long, make sure to comment. Uh, just, just make sure you comment, please. Once again, there are several ways to continue the conversation after the show. Follow us on Twitter at monkeys underscore robots. You can look at all our silly photos on Instagram at monkeys fighting robots. You can follow me on Twitter at Matthew Sardo. My co-host Anthony is also on Twitter at the underscore great underscore ace. The biggest compliment we receive is when the subscriber number goes up on Blog Talk Radio. If you have a chance, we would greatly appreciate a review of our show on iTunes. As always, the best way to listen to the show is on our website, monkeysfightingrobots.com. That's Sergeant Deegan to you, poozer! You know what a poozer is, don't you, poozer? No, sir. There are so many people that made the first episode of the comic show on Monkeys Fighting Robots a success. Special shout-out to my co-host, Anthony Campasto. And this is where you chime in and just say something, David. Oh. I had a great time. It was awesome. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, no, this was awesome. Thanks. Excelsior. (laughs) Jessica Wynn designed the Monkey Spider Robots logo. Are you a monkey? Are you a robot? The staff of Visual Realm built our website and keeps us up and running. To all my friends, family, and the interweb, thank you very much for your support. I'm Matt Sardo, and this is Monkey Spider Robots. <laughs>